0: Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest. September 21st, 2023, the Who's Winning the Autoworker Strike Edition. I'm David Plotz of CityCast. I'm in Washington, D.C., uh, John Dickerson of CBS Primetime is in New York City. Hello, John.
1: Oh, hello, David. Hi, Emily, even though you haven't been announced. Hello.
0: And that's Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School in New Haven, Connecticut. Hi, Emily. Hi. John, you and I seem to be wearing the same shirt.
1: Oh, my God. We huh. are. We are wearing, by the way, we're. it's essentially athleisure wear. I, I mean, I don't think of it that way, but it's my running shirt.
0: Yeah, this is I was ba- going to go for a bike ride after this. Does
1: yours have the little thing for your thumb?
0: Oh, this one doesn't, but I have others that do. Love those.
1: Yeah. I oh god, in the fall and winter. Oh. It's tremendously satisfying.
0: This week on The Gabfest, the UAW strike is stretching into a second week, so we will discuss the fascinating questions it raises about capitalism, about globalism, about politics, then misinformation abuse, political meddling much worse or rampant on the big social platforms. Who benefits from it? Why? We will talk to Yoel Roth, the former head of trust and safety at Twitter, who is now under attack from Donald Trump, Elon Musk, various other dark forces of the internet who are out to get him. Then inspired by a news story in the Atlantic, we will talk about reason number 468 that it is harder to be a teacher these days. That is the exhausting work of dealing with negotiating with parents all the time. Plus, of course, we'll have cocktail chatter. And a reminder that we have a live show coming up in Madison, Wisconsin on Wednesday, October 25th at the Majestic Theater in downtown Madison. It's at 7.30 p.m. on that Wednesday night. We have a few tickets left, so get your tickets. There are just a few left. We're going to have a fun show. We're gonna, In fact, we're going to converse. You guys sent us great guest ideas. We're going to converse about potential special guests. Um, but go to slate.com slash live to get tickets for our show in Madison, The Majestic, on Wednesday, October 25th. So the most astonishing fact, which you all probably know, you all meaning John and Emily, and actually you all probably listeners, is that UAW membership, which peaked at 1.5 million in 1979, is now only about 150,000. And about 12,000 of those members across the big three Automakers, although are they the big three automakers? They're not really the big three. Ford and GM are American automakers. Stellantis, which is not really an American company anymore, and and also doesn't sound like an automaker. It just sounds like a, a new cruise ship or something.
2: And also, I had never oh, heard I of totally. it until this week. No, it sounds
1: it sounds like something you take for your blood pressure. You're on Lipitor while I'm on Stellantis.
0: Yeah. Anyway, that one.
1: Don't try <laughs> Stellantis at home. <laughs>
0: Anyway, this is a year of labor upheaval. Hollywood, of course, is at a standstill. UPS and American Airlines recently settled with their unions. Um, and union issues, labor issues are at front and center. Donald Trump will be speaking in Michigan uh, towards, I don't know if he's going to be speaking to UAW workers, but he's certainly going to be speaking towards UAW workers next week. And Joe Biden, the president, is, of course, supporting the strikers, as he says here.
1: The bottom line is that auto workers help create America's middle class. They deserve a contract that sustains them in the middle class. So, John, give
0: us the background. Uh, what is the cause of the strike? What is the union demanding? The, the president, Sean Fein, calls its demands audacious. Why are they audacious?
1: Well, I mean, when you say what causes a strike, I mean, you can go all the way back to the erosion of the middle-class social contract, right? That that there was once uh, this promise that if you had a certain kind of job in manufacturing and the car companies were um, you kind of central to this, you would have a secure middle-class life. And that meant job security, benefits, um, wages that would uh, go up with cost of living adjustments, Um And this would be protected by labor. um, And the reason business um, uh, agreed to this relationship with labor is because um, they needed a workforce. And government roughly supported this. There were obviously huge labor clashes, massive labor clashes in American history um, before that and then even during the heyday of labor. But that social contract has frayed. That's the larger reason, the more approximate one, is that with respect to the UAW, they made a series of concessions during the 7 09 financial crash, um, and they would like to claw back some of the things they gave away. And one of the things they agreed to as a part of that uh, agreement in 2007 was basically to have their wages freeze, so that basically the, the companies um, or the UAW workers have had have lost about 20% in real wages over that period of time. Whereas the average American worker wages have pretty much been flat. Um, there's a number of other things like a two tiered, um, uh, employment system and other things that, that were agreed to as a part of that UAW agreement and contract during the financial crunch. They're basically saying we did what we needed to do to help the company survive. Now you've got to help us out while you, the car companies have been making enormous profits. So, um, the, the workers are asking for a 40% increase in pay. That has now come down a little bit in negotiation. They're asking for a 32-hour, 40-hour work week. Um, get rid of this two-tiered system, which basically treats new workers differently than old workers, which creates intergenerational conflict. Um, basically treat all all workers the same. Um, uh, cost of living adjustments um, and some other things. um and the basically the argument from the the corporate side is um, we're under tremendous pressure to move into the electric vehicle market, both um, because that's where we think our long term um, future lies, and also because companies like Tesla are you know starting to take away our market share. Um, in order to make that transition, we can't give in too much to. Um, to uh, these labor demands, because it will, even though we've been making lots of money, we need that money to deal with this threatening future, which is existential. This is taking place at the same time that you have um, a government shutdown, um, resumption of student debt payments, which may have an effect on the economy, um, and the Fed probably moving again before the end of the year. So it takes place in a context of a possibly Turbulent uh, economic period, which whether the UAW strike contributes to that economic peri- um, turbulence is almost immaterial. It might very well uh, get the blame for or get wrapped up in that, which is a kind of external factor that's probably worth keeping in mind. There isn't mind.
2: an actual government shutdown. There's the threat of a government shutdown, right?
1: I think given the way negotiations aren't going, there's going to be a government shutdown. But you are exactly right. It has not happened yet.
0: We're taping on Thursday morning the uaw says that if there is not significant progress they're going to expand the strike tomorrow and one of the interesting things about the strike is its strategy which is that it touched each of the car companies but only in a very limited way um but in enough of a way that it's disruptive it's causing supply chain problems for them across cascading across their production what what do you make of this uh interesting targeted strike strategy
2: I mean, I think it's smart. It seems like it can do the disruption you were talking about, but it also means that um, there are a smaller number of workers who get money through the union strike fund, and that could make the strike fund stretch out for longer. There's a kind of side fight going on about whether if the companies lay off workers who are going to work and are not striking, whether they'll be eligible for the normal layoff pay that you would get and also for unemployment benefits. But in any case, it's a smart way of um, trying to use union resources and um, labor power to make the strike um, hurt the companies, but also potentially be able to go on for longer.
0: We grew up in the 70s as the the heyday of the American car industry ended And we grew up, I mean, I certainly, my family went from an American car to a Toyota Corolla. That was a transition we made in the late 70s. And my parents have since owned Toyotas and Subarus. And I think I've only owned, I once owned an American car, but I've only owned, uh, you know, a VW and a Subaru. The car industry is highly, it was international in the 70s. It is highly international now. American car manufacturers are manufacturing a significant amount of their their output in mexico non-american car companies are here and are not unionized for the most part the largest american car company is tesla and it is not unionized i mean how what is the place of a uaw in this world where auto manufacturing is is so international where there's threats from every corner of the globe chinese evs coming soon to a dealership near you what is the place of the UAW? Can it can it survive? Can can this rearguard action actually win and and be sufficient to protect these workers who have worked hard and provide help provide record profits for these car companies?
2: Yeah, I mean one way I think about this is that the union and its workers are like an island in this sea where the sea is all going against their interests, right? The sea is like globalization and the EV shift you were talking about and these pressures that are driving wages down. But the union still has power on its island. That's its domain. And, you know, I I listen to the excuses for not giving these workers, you know, the kind of pay and benefits that they want. And it just... Honestly like infuriates me. They took these big cuts to help the company survive in the recession just like you were talking about. They've never been made whole. Um like you said, John, the companies are making right now enormous profits. The CEOs are getting paid umpteen millions of dollars and there's always a reason not to compensate the workers, like not to give them back the share of the pie. And and I just it it makes me so mad on their behalf. And then I guess rationally, you have to step back and remember that there was this sort of post-war period where labor was able to extract more money, more of a share of wealth than usual for the economy. And since like the 80s, really, since Reagan, we've kind of slid back from that moment of relative... I don't want to exaggerate, but relative economic equality. And it's gone in the other direction. And so presumably, these larger social forces are militating against what the union is asking for. But it just seems like on the island, entirely justified,
1: especially since on the island, the CEO of General Motors made nearly $30 million, $29 million in 2022, which is 362 times the median GM employees paycheck, which is, is extraordinary though of course that happens outside that island too the other larger point i would say about this and what makes it so interesting to me is that david you exactly you put it exactly right which is that there are a series of special factors that make the long-term future of these companies reliant on in some ways the cooperation of the uaw so the, the uaw needs to be um do right by its members but also has to um not uh, go so far that they harm these companies these car companies who are trying to operate in an entirely new environment but in a larger sense the uh, all the union activity we've seen that you mentioned um, and I can't remember whether you mentioned UPS as well they too were um, they too got had a tiered system that they uh, as a result of their strike negotiations got rid of or at least changed significantly and um, This is all a part of basically unions trying to figure out how to redress the the fraying of this social contract and the inequality that has happened as a result in a system where government's not doing a great job at handling that, the market isn't doing a great job at handling that. And so this is a test case, as all the other labor fights are, but it's a test case in a weird situation. In other words, where it's got idiosyncratic elements. There are smarter people, and I haven't
0: read this stuff the way I should, probably should, but who've who have made the point over and over again that one of the fundamental uh, kind of things eroding the foundation of America and American democracy right now is that the 2007-2009 pain was just not distributed properly. And this is where we see it. Like, that, it always felt so wrong to me. And I remember, actually, I said this on the GavFest. I remember this. We've been t- doing this podcast long enough. I said, I am surprised there are not people with pitchforks And burning spears at the houses of these financial ceos you know like going after them going going after the the people who are responsible for this and the people who caused that pain in 2007 2009 and the people industries did not pay a price and have never really paid the price and are richer than ever today not every single one of them but as a class um and then the people who who bore the brunt of it, who are people who got screwed on their mortgages, or people who were at industries that that suddenly had to get take a massive haircut, ha- have suffered and suffered and suffered. And this is a chickens coming home to roost for for all the people who who benefited back in the day. But it's not clear to me, as just as the cause is as correct as it is that 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 the workers who. Bore that pain in two thousand seven, and two thousand eight, and two thousand nine, and since, as correct as it is that they should be made whole, it's not clear to me that the economy, that the the relentless, inexorable, cruel force of capitalism can will permit it in a way that is tenable in the long term. Like it is not clear that the middle class, like that, this very dream that we all grew up with that you cannot have a college degree and you can go and have a job and it can support a middle-class life for you and your children that it is tenable and that's fucked up and sad well i but don't I know. know what
2: you mean by tenable because i mean it seems to me like it's perfectly tenable it's the the question is and in terms of whether the companies can afford it i think whether they, they can, can afford, afford it. it i yeah, think whether they, they can afford well, it i am super skeptical of that when you have 15 billion dollars a year in profits right now but but it's not, but in the profits
0: real? on enormous revenues? It's their margins are very <sighs> thin, Emily. Like it's it's not it's not that they that's fifteen billion dollars is a huge amount of money. But when you look at the the total revenue they're bringing in, hundreds of billions of dollars, their actual margins are thin. They're not they're not hugely profitable companies. The the total dollars are large, but as a percentage of what they do, it's not that large because they are in a very 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 competitive market, and that that could turn to nothing. Very easily,
2: right? And part of the problem is we're talking about this particular um, dilemma in isolation, not connected to all the other things that, like the American government and society and polity, could be doing on behalf of workers that would change the equation, right? So yeah. that some of yeah. the support you're talking about comes from other forces, and you're taxing other kinds of corporations in a way that then floats the boats of the workers, so you don't put it all on these particular companies. I also think, though, that this is about whether they have the leverage, right? There's the question of can the company really cost this out over time without, you know, losing all of its market share to um, foreign companies abroad and like, you know, outsourcing to Mexico? Yes, that is like one question. But also there's just the question of even if that even if they could, even if that is all plausible, Um do they have the leverage to do it, given all those forces? And that's a sort of separate question from, you know, whether the companies can afford it.
1: And also, and I mean, and and we should remember all of the other companies that are attached to the big three, um, suppliers, even just local community, uh, the communities in which the strikers live, you know, they're now living on Th- not, they're living on strike funds. Um, and, and that's, you know, so they don't have as much money to spend the weekly $500 weekly stipend. Isn't what they were getting paid before. So th- when the ripple effects start happening, there have already been layoffs at various plants. Um, whether that starts to dilute their leverage, despite the fact that they feel, um, the rightness in their cause. Usually one of the solutions to this would be uh, some charismatic, uh, public figure, putting this in the larger context sometimes perhaps even a politician but the politicians on this uh are conflicted you know biden is a union person but he's also supporting the uh the ev transition with a recent 15 billion dollar uh supplement to the um to encourage the um Ah, uh, fund to support EV- the EV transition. He's causing, not causing, but he is su- very much supporting one of the things that the unions are uh, nervous about. So it's not, it's not perfect, and the membership is um, not entirely behind him. Just and when general. we have
2: this, you know, Donald Trump is going to show up there soon and is claiming, you know, making these kind of inconsistent claims about being against the leadership, not the workers. But I mean. I just feel like it's predictable that he's going to get a real audience and a platform and is going to play this in a way that is to his own benefit. Do you guys think that Biden should walk the picket line?
1: There's a precedent issue, which means then every time there's a there's a picket, there, every time there's a strike, he's got to decide whether he goes or doesn't go. And that makes it always about him. Um, and also, I'm not sure he's real welcome. He was sending... Um, there were some, you know, White House envoys who were going to go uh, help with the negotiations that were then that didn't go. Um, I don't think it's it's necessarily a welcome place for him. Um, so so I think that's probably suggests that it would not be a good idea.
0: Can I just actually make one point about CEO pay? Because whenever something like this comes up, you are presented with the horror of the this inequity. It is just so repellent that a ceo would make 400 times what their average worker makes it's just indefensible it's wrong and the only way that it's defensible is by ceos kind of only talking to their board members and the ceos and their boards only benchmarking what they make against other ceo peers and that if your your constituency is your ceo peers and wall street But if your constituency, if if Mary Barra and the other and the other and the whoever the Stellantis CEO and the Ford CEO, if they if they benchmarked against what their workers were making, if their constituency was the people they worked with, the people who actually were their colleagues, then they would be paid normally. You know, maybe they'd make ten times what the what the average worker was making, or um, it's just. When you, when you're, when you live only in the world of the Davos class, only in the world of the global elite, and those are the only people you talk to and think of as your peers, then it somehow entitles you to be paid like them and to make 362 times what your actual colleagues make. But it's just wrong. It's absolutely wrong. And they should be ashamed of themselves, but they're not.
1: Biden got 62% of union households in Michigan in 2020, according to exit polls, while Trump got 37% politics are different exit polls need to be you know we need to to be real careful about those but that's just a number to think about um overall trump did better with union households than republicans normally do he lost them by only eight percentage points um which is the best performance of a republican candidate since reagan but i should hasten to add politics today and the lack of party switching and the calcified partisanship make that Reagan comparison um, not so good. But anyway, those are just two little. Um, uh, and I should say that back into 2020, even though Trump did well in 2016, the gap was back up to 17 points in 2020. So those are just some numbers to think about the, ne- the political theatrics in the coming weeks between Biden and Trump with this UAW strike.
0: Do you want to hear more from us after this episode? Sure you do. Emily's shaking her head like, no, (laughs) but of course you do. You should stick around for our bonus segment today. We're going to be, we're going to be talking about Lauren Boebert last week in slate. Plus we talked about Susanna Gibson, the Democrat who left a surprising video trail of her off hours behavior. This week we will talk about a Republican who is leaving a surprising video trail of her off hours behavior. Lauren Boebert, who was misbehaving in so many ways in the performance of Beetlejuice. So, uh, John, John's. I can't believe we're John about That this. is why you should become a Slate Plus member. The fact that John is signed. Maybe John missed this in the
2: one. traffic before and didn't realize he'd agreed <laughs> to this. No, I, <laughs> I,
1: I, I, I. One has to pick one. It's going to be good.
0: It's going to be great. If you're a Slate Plus member, thank you. Because of you, we've been able to keep the gap going for so many years. If you're not a Slate Plus member, please sign up. Uh, we think you get great stuff. These bonus segments are so fun and so interesting and you get them every week as well as on many other Slate podcasts. You get discounts to our live shows like the one at Madison, no hitting the paywall on the Slate site. So if you're a member, thank you. If you're not a member, go to slate.com slash GavBest Plus to become a member today.
2: We are so glad this morning to be joined by Yoel Roth. Yoel Roth is a visiting scholar at the University of Pennsylvania and the former head of trust and safety at Twitter, where for more than seven years, he led the teams responsible for Twitter's content moderation, integrity, and platform security. And, and he's been thinking and writing about all the very difficult issues that go into content moderation online, the convicting values and incentives. And this week, he's the author of what I found to be a really important essay in the New York Times. It's called Trump Attacked Me, Then Musk Did. It Wasn't an Accident. And what I take away from this essay is that there is a really looming threat to um, elections in 2024, not just the United States election, because you point out that there are 40 elections around the world, um, many in other big and significant countries. And what you made me think is that Some of the solutions to the spread of disinformation that the companies seem to be kind of reluctantly moving toward because of a lot of criticism, that those solutions are now under threat um, because of the kind of partisan nature of the conflict over disinformation in the United States. And so you basically have um, the right wing using pressure campaigns and lawsuits to make the companies stop trying to fight disinformation. Um, Can you just talk a little bit about what your big concern is here, what you see kind of on the horizon?
3: Sure. Thanks for having me. After 2016, we saw kind of a loose coalition emerge between civil society groups, academic researchers, tech platforms, and the government to address disinformation in its various forms. And that work was measurably effective. We had pretty significant election security challenges in 2016, Russian interference was a thing that happened. And then it didn't really happen in 2018 or 2020 or 2022. And that wasn't for lack of trying by Russia or a whole host of others. It was, in fact, the product of sustained investment. And what I worry about going into a year that's going to have a ton of elections is that a sustained campaign to make that work seem like it was political and driven by an attempt to target Donald Trump has now eroded the effectiveness of that coalition and has undermined its ability to operate. I think one of the assumptions that
0: people had is that if that there was a there was a sort of a self-regulating aspect to this, that if the platforms became sorted and ugly and unreliable, it would cause themselves to clean themselves up because that no one would want to be in this garden of hate speech and this this garden of trollishness. The regular people wouldn't be there and therefore there would be a a natural regulation. Why does that not happen? Why is that not happening?
3: I think there's a number of self-regulatory forces that at least theoretically are at play in the social media space. Um, I think user preferences, as you noted, are one of them, right? People don't want to be on social media that sucks. And if they're surrounded by hate speech and abuse, there's lots and lots of research that every platform conducts that suggests that they'll leave. At Twitter, we would do what was called funnel analysis, an analysis of people who sign up for Twitter, try it for a couple of days, and then leave and never come back. And we would actually ask them, well, why did you leave and not come back? and Overwhelmingly, the most frequent response was because it was abusive and terrible. And so there's a really clear imperative there for platforms to make themselves not abusive and terrible. There's other incentives too, right? I think advertiser pressure is a significant factor. I've written previously about the influence of app stores from Apple and Google on this process. And certainly, regulation, especially now from the European Union, is a significant factor here. But What we've seen with Twitter in particular, I guess now X, uh, is that even those forces aren't enough. In the face of a desire to reshape what this platform looks like, everything else goes out the window. Financial incentives go out the window. 60% of advertisers on Twitter have left and aren't coming back. Users have left and aren't coming back. Regulators are chomping at the bit for an enforcement action. And so all of the things that we thought would keep social media relatively in check Don't seem to be working quite that way anymore.
1: Right. What if it, what if Twitter just becomes a vanity, two things, a vanity project in which those market forces don't matter and, and where you can rally the club, where you can rally your, the people who see the world as you do and who, as you uh, have written about, can be aimed at someone, uh, can be, and, and, and whoa, if you, I mean, you know what it's like and, and we all have had um, even when you bump up against it, um, you know, I asked Tim Cook a question about Twitter, uh, when I interviewed him for Sunday morning and, and you, you, it puts you in that world for just a minute and it is hairy. Um, so, so I guess the question is, um, what if it's sufficiently destabilizing to our politics all over the globe? If it's maybe not a huge group of people on Twitter, but the people who are there are incredibly passionate, activated, and prone to taking matters into their own hands.
3: I mean, that's always been a bit of the risk of Twitter. Twitter has never been the most popular social media platform. It's not Instagram with 2 billion users. It's not Facebook with 3 billion users. But the users of Twitter always mattered. They mattered because they were politicians. They mattered because they were the press. They mattered because they were celebrities and media elites. And if you think about how political influence and persuasion happen, they happen through channels of elite communication, and therefore Twitter was a really central tool for all of that. And so part of the reason why we've always worried about disinformation campaigns on Twitter in particular is because we would see the Russian government, the Iranian government, the Chinese government, not just going after ordinary Americans, they would go after journalists, they would go after politicians directly, and they would seek to influence them there. Twitter remains a really potent tool for reaching and influencing those audiences. But it's also a tool for reaching and influencing these incredibly activatable, violent audiences that you were talking about. We've seen those dynamics on other platforms, right? It's, it's noteworthy that most of the violence of January the 6th wasn't organized on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. It was organized on what we call fringe platforms, the sort of outskirts of the web. If Twitter turns into a fringe platform without appropriate governance, you can see exactly those same types of violent dynamics emerge. It's a platform that has all of the features that can lend to that type of violent outcome And the only thing holding it back has been trust and safety work that increasingly is non-existent.
2: Can you talk a little bit about the difference that you see emerging between the European and American approaches? You know, the Europeans, these are not homegrown companies. They don't have the same incentive to make sure that they continue to exert this enormous global influence. I I feel like I have to mention this, to me, crazy lawsuit that's going on where the fifth circuit has ruled that, um, the government, that the justice department can no longer basically talk to the trust and safety people in social media companies about threats of disinformation they see related to COVID or elections. And the idea is that this is a first amendment violation. Um, even though the companies didn't bring the lawsuit and the consumers didn't bring the lawsuit, it's, it's a really weird case. Um, I think the Supreme Court, Justice Alito stepped in to kind of stay the actual um, injunction against the government. So, you know, maybe they'll do something sensible. But it just to me reflects that there is this real divide happening where the Europeans are trying to kind of roll up their sleeves and think in a more practical way. And we're just like stuck in the United States um, in terms of making everything into a kind of partisan free speech debate.
3: I mean, really, in those two examples, there is a fundamental disagreement about what the proper role of government should be in regulating the private sector. In the United States, the First Amendment looms large over everything, right? And the argument is companies like Twitter and Facebook have First Amendment rights and their content moderation policies and approach are an expression of the company's First Amendment right to govern itself however the hell it wants, and therefore the Fifth Circuit has taken the position that when the government tries to influence what companies are doing, they are engaging in prohibited job owning. I think that's a reasonable concern, right? I'm an American. I tend to view these things through a pretty American lens. And I worry about the government telling private companies what to do. I think having companies that make different moderation decisions based on their own free will is generally a good thing. European regulators take a diametrically opposed viewpoint on all of this right? The the view in Europe is, of course, the government should be telling you how to manage yourself. That is an expression of the democratic intent of the European people. And so you see in the Digital Services Act, not sort of directly dictating the policies that companies should adopt, but certainly a strong framework that says you must attain these minimum standards in order to be an acceptable platform in Europe. And you've seen European leaders go so far as to say that if platforms don't appropriately moderate themselves, the European Commission will step in and restrict them or block them in Europe. This was a discussion during some of the protests in France. And you heard Thierry Breton, sort of the lead commissioner on regulating platforms, say, if platforms don't stop this type of violence, we will block them. And I think about that through an American First Amendment lens, and it's horrifying. I'm like, Freedom of assembly is one of the core guarantees in, in the First Amendment. And here you have European regulators saying that they would prioritize safety over the availability of a platform that enables that type of organization. Those are just different worldviews. One
0: of the reasons why I was so glad to have you on today is because not only are you somebody who's written about this, but you've been a, literally a victim of the, the kind of mob. I don't want to use the word victim too strongly. I mean, you're, you, have a job and you, you look to be in decent health at the moment, but you've been harassed and harangued and, and your life made miserable. And I, I would, I would like you to talk a little bit about how much the, the, the goals of the people who want the disinformation to rule the platform can be advanced simply by making life quite unpleasant for the people who are trying to stop them. Like simply, but if you just make life sort of, marginally more unpleasant by doxing people, by harassing them, by threatening them. Uh, They stop doing
2: all their emails and records, which is happening to researchers at various universities.
0: They'll just stop doing it. And therefore, you, you will be free to carry on whatever malevolence you want to carry on.
3: I mean, I think there's a belief that investment in trust and safety work is an inevitability and that there will always be people who want to do this. But The reality is it isn't the case that there is an unlimited supply of people signing up to be doxxed and abused and harassed and have their lives blown up. Like people choose to do this work because they care about the mission. And if at a certain point the disadvantages of doing it outweigh the benefits, everybody's going to leave. Can I interrupt you?
0: Can you actually talk for 30 seconds about what it is? I mean, I think people hear doxxed and harassed whatever threatened and they're like oh whatever you know someone wrote me a hostile email what does it
3: actually feel like when you're in the midst of one of these harassment campaigns it's it sort of becomes hard to separate fact and fiction i think anybody who has spoken publicly or has been a public figure voluntarily or otherwise knows that you get the threatening emails you get the at mentions on twitter but when it goes from being you know 5 or 10 a day to 5 or 10 a minute it changes your subjective experience of it evolves. When somebody shares your home address, that ratchets up the pressure again. And so the question becomes: Well, my address is out there. Is somebody going to show up? Is somebody going to bother driving out to my Bay Area suburb and finding my house? And and then if they do, what are they going to do? Are they going to take pictures of me? Are they going to protest? Are they going to you know shoot my dog when I'm out walking him? Are they going to shoot me? And you don't really know how to parse that, right? Like. Even the field of trust and safety is all about risk management and analysis. And you think of yourself as being a professional in understanding and evaluating risk. But the point of these campaigns is to distort your sense of reality, you completely lose perspective on what the risks you face are and what you ought to do about them. And so when you reach the, the kind of frenzied point of being bombarded with the harassing emails and the content on social media, oh, and then by the way, the Daily Mail publishes where you live, you're you're sort of at a loss of what to do. And and I actually think that's the strategy. It disorients you. It intimidates you. It scares you. It makes it so that it doesn't even matter if the threats are plausible or not. And I had many reasons to think the threats targeting me were plausible, but it doesn't need to be. It just needs to throw you off enough that you stop making decisions rationally.
1: What should a thinking person do or think about if they have a Twitter account? And two contexts, should they stay on it? Should they be engaged? Should they leave? Do you still have your account? I think you do. And finally, what happens if if Musk starts charging Uh, Does that change the answer?
3: Every social media platform as a business is viable because people voluntarily contribute content to the platform, right? The whole theory of the participatory internet is these services are free for their users and the value exchange is users create content, platforms can run ads against that content, they make money, everybody's happy. When people use Twitter today, and by that I mean create content on Twitter... They should do so with eyes wide open that they are directly putting money in Elon Musk's pocket. And you have to make a decision about whether that's an acceptable value exchange for you. For me, it isn't. I don't post on Twitter anymore. I don't log into Twitter if I can avoid it unless I'm doing research. And I feel that that's no longer an acceptable value exchange. The the value I get from Twitter does not come anywhere near my concerns and and moral qualms about giving money to Elon Musk. There are people for whom that's different. There are people who have an irreplaceable audience that is still on Twitter, people who can only speak or only find a community on that platform. And I respect those decisions. I would encourage everybody to be really intentional about that, to think about who are you giving money to, who are you giving attention to, and also, what are some of the security and privacy risks that go along with an increasingly unstable and unpredictable platform? For me, that was enough to leave Twitter, but it's a really personal decision for everyone.
0: Yoel, Roth, thanks for joining us on the Gabfest. Come back anytime. Thanks for having me. It's become clear that in basically every way, it is much, much harder to be a teacher today, especially a public school teacher than it was a few years ago. As has been discussed in so many forums, including here, the pandemic learning loss, the exodus of teachers, the attacks on how gender, sexuality, and race are taught, the censoring of libraries, the rise of parents' rights groups, all are taking a toll on teachers. And now comes a new entry from Sarah Chaves in The Atlantic. Um, She's a teacher who's written... Parent diplomacy is overwhelming teachers. And it caught her eye. What is Chaves saying, Emily?
2: She is saying that teachers are spending an enormous amount of time and energy talking to parents and dealing with parents. And I think she's really careful in saying that some of this is good and productive. She is all for communicating with parents about how their kids are actually doing in school, especially the kids who seem like they need more support at home, who of course, those are the parents she often has trouble um, actually getting in touch with. What she's finding really burdensome are kind of constant queries um, in response to like every single quiz score a kid gets or fussing over political issues that touch on school, but that she has absolutely no control over like, you know covid restrictions and you know these larger questions about you know how much how what kind of parental rights people have or what the books are like in the library these are not things that your kids actual teacher has much effect on and it just struck me that this is such a good example of too much information Like the idea that you would have online homework um, apps where parents can constantly check in, like, yes, they can keep track of their kid's progress and maybe that's useful, but it also means they have a, a million small reasons to be questioning a teacher and getting in touch and just asking all kinds of questions that like not only can I not imagine my parents having had this kind of involvement, I didn't have this involvement in my kids' schooling. I had no window like this into my kids' kind of daily existence at school. And I kind of came away from this feeling like that was better.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's so it does seem like the the distinction, there's three categories. There's a category of the parent who isn't involved enough because they don't feel prepared, they're too exhausted or unable to participate and she is she wishes they would participate more but then it's the 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 people who are furious at the school system and then the people who are jockeying to win the meritocratic race and gaining an edge for their kids by negotiating a grade and stuff and both of those seem bad how do we reduce the temperature of parents parents are so angry and edgy and anxious and that seems to be contributing so much to all of this what's going to calm them down
2: I mean, what's hard about this is that they're, they feel correctly like they're living in a scarcity culture in terms of college admissions and their fears for their kids having opportunities later in life. Right? Well, but also
0: the, that's the meritocratic ones. But then the angry yes. ones are just angry because they're like, the, I've lost control of what my kids are learning. They're learning critical race theory in kindergarten and that, you know, that everyone is, is without a gender.
1: Two things and I don't know where they fit in the order of priorities. One is what we were talking about in the UAW topic, which is when you feel like the path to success has been taken away for the next generation, you're much more anxious about it. And so everywhere, it seems like, wait a minute, in the old days, things were relatively fair. Now they're hugely unfair and that you feel that in general. And then you see things that don't seem right to you or decisions being made or things talked about that you thought were private and to be discussed at home or whatever. And it can attach to that larger sense of, of chaos and fear and destabilization. You also have a class of politicians who are, um, constantly poking and stoking those fears, um, for attention that gets them money, um, and that's all become nationalized, um, and the attention that it gets them um, through the various media outlets. So it's become a successful route to, uh, to the top, which keeps people inflamed.
0: I mean, it's clear you can succeed with the school system with too much parental involvement. Uh, there are these riots in Korea right now, because or there's demonstrations because of the excessive involvement of parents and the excessive harassment of parents, of teachers. and But the Korean school system is very good. And you can succeed with too little parental involvement. Amanda Ripley wrote this wonderful book, The Smartest Kids in the World. And a lot of it was about the Finnish public school system, where parents have nothing to do with it. Parents have no idea what's happening. So it's not that one or the other is right. It is about like, what is the right kinds of involvement to have? And- seems like we have miscalibrated and it's also like the as I, i'm a so i'm a parent most of my kids have mostly been in public school but this year my youngest we moved from public a public high school to a private high school because the public high school that he'd been attending we felt wasn't doing what what we needed and i felt bad about that um and there's this, you know, exit voice and loyalty. I've exited the public school system. I am not invested in the public school system of D.C. in the way I've always been for the last 22 years. And you, it's really important as a society that we minimize the amount of exiting. Because you want parents to be involved. You don't want them to be like, I can't stand it. I'm out of here. You want them to stay involved. But abandonment is also a real
1: issue.
2: Right. And then there's the abandonment of teachers and the fact that we have these just enormous teacher shortages going on and that the job, which one of its benefits, I think, was that, yes, teachers had lots of prep work and their own homework to do, but it did have a kind of sense of being limited in terms of the months of the year and also the hours in the day. And now I think for more and more teachers, it just feels like it never ends and it doesn't pay very well. It's not high status. And we're kind of creating a situation in which, um, we're making it less and less appealing for you know good people to go into
0: the fact that it's not high status is so maddening it should be such high status it should be such
1: a high status job even if it's not the best paid job in the world like what is more important we find that particularly in the with the testing gap that have been exacerbated by and the um by the pandemic the programs some of the ones that um that have worked well, a lot of the pandemic money that's been put in education has not um, improved things much, but the ones that have worked well are, and this has been true for a long time, but are where there are teachers working directly with kids. In other words, it's not just we have a shortage relative to previous levels, we're finding that the the best way to help kids, um, and there was some of this in the Mississippi reading study, which showed that um, having third graders stay back in some instances was was useful but the other part of the study was that if you train the teachers the right way you can improve reading scores and so that what we're finding works requires actually even more teachers and more investment from teachers in the in the actual teaching of things which is all that much more hard to do when they're being pelted with all of this secondary stuff can i just
0: actually Pose a question to our Gabfest listeners that I've been wondering about, and I I don't think I've ever asked if I've asked this on the Gabfest before. Let me know, but I know we have a lot of teacher listeners and a lot of people who have kids in high school, uh, parents of kids in high school. Something I've wondered about: there's all this talk about the book bannings, and for years the talk about book bannings that I focused on was really about Huckleberry Finn. That the the Huckleberry Finn was is this American magnificent American book that is filled with language that is it is horrifying and. I mean it's intentionally horrifying, but it is horrifying language. And I've just been wondering if that book is being taught at all anymore.
2: I think if, the answer whether is. It
0: no. has, whether it has just quiet vanished. I would be very curious, to if you're someone who's been teaching it at high school for a while, whether this is a book that used to be taught and no one teaches it, or if there's anyone who who still does teach it. Like I'd love to hear how that's gone because I my sense is that it is I don't think my kids have read it. I don't hear people talk about it. I think this was a book that was every student read in certainly in our generation. We all read it and I don't think any kids are reading it today. And I'm just really curious whether that I'm, my instinct is right um, on that. So let me know and you can, you can be anonymous. I'm not going to like out you as a person who teaches Huckleberry Finn and, or doesn't teach it. Let's go to cocktail chatter. Emily, when you were having a, Crisp fall cocktail, finally, at last, a fall cocktail in New Haven. What could be better? What are you going to be chattering about with all your your pointy-headed Ivy League white tower friends?
2: Good grief. Um, I'm really interested in a story this week in the Connecticut Mirror about Nora Danahy. So Nora Danahy is currently a nominee for the Connecticut Supreme Court. And so she was answering questions about... Um, in regard to the, her nomination, and she broke her silence about why she quit the Trump-Russia investigation and resigned from the Department of Justice before the 2020 election. This was a moment in which she was the top deputy to John Durham. He was the prosecutor who was supposed to be in some way vindicating Donald Trump in the whole you know, post-Muller fallout. And what He said was that she quit as a matter of conscience because she thought that Bill Barr, who was Trump's attorney general, was trying to improperly pressure the investigation to try to get a public report out before the 2020 election. In some ways, this is just like a sort of coda to a story that ended a while ago. On the other hand, it's really important why she left this investigation, that she's confirming what seemed like the obvious suspicion all along. And I have to say, it made me deeply frustrated that she has been silent this whole time. If she had come out in that moment and said that Barr was exerting this kind of pressure, it would have been politically meaningful and it would have helped explain what was happening and why it was so dangerous that the Justice Department was being turned into This kind of political weapon but she held her you know she kept quiet until now and now of course she's in this totally different political context where in the democratically controlled state of connecticut she feels like she has to answer these questions in order to get this position and i just found the whole thing very frustrating as a matter of like professional ethics frankly
1: john what's your chatter One is the straight up in the traditional uh, definition of chatter. On Sunday in the Utah desert, it may very well be the case that a parachute will drop from the heavens. And at the end of that parachute will be a cup of rubble. And that cup of rubble will be the result of a seven year long mission. NASA shot a rocket containing a craft on it in 2016 to go and follow an asteroid and then land upon the asteroid. Take up some um, rock samples from the asteroid and then cruise back to Earth and drop it by parachute as it continued then on to its next reward. And first of all, that's incredibly cool to be able to do that, to be able to target, like, see the way in which the asteroid is going. And and have the craft go there, pick up the rocks. And the reason the rocks are interesting is that the asteroid is um, believed to be from the very beginning of the solar the solar system, and so it contains on it the early makings. Uh, It's called a time. It's referred to sometimes as the time capsule for the beginning of the solar system, but it contains the beginning. composition of the solar system and so uh on sunday hopefully they will be um you know finding some useful stuff at the end of this parachute it's not certain to me that it's gonna work because the, the, the lid jammed on the the way in which it collects the rock so it's a big mystery whether it'll happen okay second thing is a book called the art of explanation by ross atkins who's who I'm a big fan of, he's um, with the BBC, and he does explainers, um, really well done about just things in the news and whatever, um, whatever uh, he thinks uh, requires explanation. Anyway, he's written a book um, about the art of explanation, which isn't just for people in our book, our business who try to explain things. But it's a useful book for anybody who seeks better explanation in the things we hear, which is basically more important than ever, because so much of our um, journalism, either because staffs have shrunk or because people no longer find it important. Um, we've removed the explanation and the why for for why anything is happening. We just say the what, but very rarely the why. So um, I would recommend that book to uh, people.
0: My Chatter is about a wonderful expedition that my girlfriend and I did this past weekend to a place called Mallow's Bay. If you live in the DC area, I want to really recommend it. So Mallow's Bay is a spot on the Potomac River, on the Maryland side of the Potomac River, about 40 miles south of DC. It's right across from Quantico in Virginia, if you know Quantico, the Marine Center. And Malice Bay is a curiosity because right after World War I, the US had had made a huge surge to build a bunch of ships during World War I in 1917, 1918, as a way of transporting troops and material across the Atlantic. And so there was this enormous contract to build ships so they built 300 quite huge ships and they were never used because they were a they were really poorly built ships and b they were built too late by the time they were coming off the 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 boatyards the war was almost over and so at the end of the war the u.s found itself with hundreds of ships each the size of a football field They were wooden-sided ships, but they had tons of metal in them, including the metal engines, these huge steam engines that were inside of them, coal-powered steam engines. So what they did is they took them to the Potomac River, they parked them all at the Potomac River, and started stripping them for parts. And it became the largest boat graveyard in the Western Hemisphere, with 300 boats sitting on the side of the Potomac River, and over generations these boats burned they were stripped salvaged um but there are the it's called the ghost fleet of mallows bay and there's the remains of 300 boats sitting shallowly in the potomac river mostly just a few feet of boat left and they've become habitats for birds bald eagles aplenty uh, beavers building dams in them um wonderful flowers and trees coming out of them and you can kayak among it and and sort of see the this the ghostly remains it's a incredible place listeners you also have great chatters and you share them with us by emailing them to us at gabfestitslate.com um we have so many so many good ones keep piling up uh and our listener chatter this week is from kevin
1: collins hey gabfest this is kevin collins from san antonio texas i've got a great chatter to share with you thanks to annalise bear on tiktok Imagine being able to step back in time and witness the ancient Aztec capital city of Tenochtitlan in all its historical glory. And now we can thanks to this new website, tenochtitlan.thomascole.nl. The site offers an incredibly detailed and historically accurate 3 d rendering of Tenochtitlan, the precursor to modern-day Mexico City, around 1518. My favorite part is the past and present feature that overlays images of modern-day Mexico City onto the ancient city's layout, allowing you to scroll through time and witness how the modern city we know today was built upon the ruins of Tenochtitlan. I hope you enjoy exploring this ancient city as much as I have.
0: That's our show for today. The GabFest is produced by Shana Roth. Our researcher is Julie Hugan. Our theme music is by They Might Be Giants. Ben Richmond is Senior Director for Podcast Operations. And Alicia Montgomery, who I saw this week in the flesh, Alicia and I ran into each other, is the VP of audio of Slate. Please email us, chatter, at GabFestslate.com. And please come to our live show in Madison. Go to Slate.com slash Live to get tickets for that show. For Emily Bazelon, and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Last week, uh, Susanna Gibson, Democratic State House candidate in Virginia, was ex- revealed to have a side career performing sex online with her husband. This week, we have another story in the same similar vein. Someone else who didn't realize was she she was being watched by so many people. Lauren Boebert, the Colorado Republican, the really MAGA uh, difficult troublemaking crazy person who occupies a Colorado house seat and nearly lost it in 2022, was at Beetlejuice with a date. And she was captured by night vision cameras that apparently surveil entire theaters. She was caught on this camera, vaping, dancing in her seat, taking photos and video, feeling up her date and being felt up by him. Bobert lied about this. And then when the video evidence came out and caught her dead to rights she apologized in addition Ish. to she did apologize she did apologize she apologized i mean she she offered excuses but she did apologize the the video doesn't reveal what the people near her reported which is that not only was it she doing these things she was just being rude and obnoxious to them as well we can talk about bobbird if you guys want i actually am mo- much more interested in the question about whether we should be surveilled like this number 1 and number 2 i think it is i found it Honestly, prejudicial that the tape of not of the tape of her vaping, but the stuff about her being groped and groping that that was released. Oh. I thought that was wrong to release that. I thought that was just I thought that was something that that it should exist. I don't mind the, if it exists. That's fine. But the idea that that is released and she is held up to public ridicule for that, I thought was really unfair.
1: And well, why did that? Cross can we, wait you? a minute. Don't we?
0: Did you mention the pregnant woman? The pregnant woman sitting behind her. One of the people sitting by was pregnant.
1: Yeah. A pregnant woman sitting behind her said, can you please stop vaping? She blew her off. And then when they said that was one of the reasons she was removed from the theater, she lied and said there was no pregnant woman and it never happened. Like that matters. You're pregnant. You don't want somebody vaping. They're an asshole about it. You get to that. That matters. That
0: was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today.